Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm the RSA's Chief Executive, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to today's online event. It's a great treat for me to have the chance to talk today to one of our leading public policy thinkers, Adair Turner. Lord Turner chairs the Energy Transitions Commission, a coalition of leaders from global organisations across the energy, industry, finance and civil society sectors who are working together on creating achievable pathways to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century while driving sustainable economic prosperity and social progress. Adair was chairman of the Institute for New Economic Thinking until January 2019, where he remains a senior fellow. And from 2008 to 2013, he chaired the UK's Financial Services Authority and played a leading role in the post-crisis redesign of global banking and shadow banking regulation. Um, Now, Adair, uh, welcome, first of all. Thank you very much. Great pleasure to be here with you, Matthew. Um, I want to start because uh, I've described some of your many achievements and roles, but I've known you for a long time. And I first met you, I think you were uh, Director General at the CBI, and I was at IPPR, then I was in number 10. And we worked together on the uh, pensions uh, review. I, when I did my recent Good Work Commission, I tried as much to remember the lessons of how you got that pensions review to be so impactful. Um, so you've kind of gone from being the voice of business to being a critical policy advisor in a whole range of areas, working alongside government on pensions and financial regulation and even climate change. And now, in a sense, you're almost become a kind of critic of the economic mainstream and the policy mainstream. So just tell us something about about that journey that you've been on in your own thinking, Adair. Well, it may look externally like a journey and a, a change of point of view, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I mean, I certainly agree along with John Maynard Keynes that if the facts change, I change my mind. But actually, there's an enormous amount of continuity uh, in it. Um, I, I believe pretty much entirely in my, my adult life and my intellectual life that we have to combine the dynamism that comes from a market economy and a free society in which people are free to make choices and doing economic choices with a recognition that a pure market economy uh, will not solve all sorts of other very important uh, challenges, challenges of equitable distribution, challenges of externalities like climate change. So in a sense, my sort of guiding lights of an intellectual point of view to how one approaches society uh, have had a lot of continuity. I mean, I think probably my two greatest intellectual heroes are are Karl Popper uh, and uh, John Maynard Keynes. And from them, I learned and took on board at a very early stage this sort of commitment to some category of mixed economy uh, and, as it were, a, a process of approaching uh, policies and facts uh, on a fact basis. Uh, I think what has changed during my life is that when I initially got engaged in public policy debates back in the 1970s uh, at Cambridge University, where I was chairman of the Conservative Association, the Cambridge University Conservative Association, I saw the main threat to what I believed in, as at that stage coming from a simplistic, 
uh, purely a socialist point of view, a planned socialism, an overstatement on egalitarianism, a lack of in- interest uh, in the role of markets. I saw the threat uh, to what I believed in uh, from the left. And I think increasingly in the course of the 1990s and 2000s, I saw the threat coming from, as it were, the neoliberal right and the simplistic right. Uh, But in defence of my own position, I would say, I don't think I changed. I think the spectrum of opinion shifted so far uh, to the right um, that as somebody who believed in a somewhat continuous set of points of view, I then saw uh, the main problems as coming from the neoliberal right rather than the simplistic socialist left. Uh, that reminds me very much uh, uh, Roy Hattersley used to give exactly the same answer about the fact that he'd always stood in the same position whilst the Labour Party had moved 360 degrees around him. Um, you were involved in the response to the last uh, kind of the, the financial crisis, which was the kind of last time it felt like the globe, the whole world was 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 involved in a crisis. And um, we've done a lot of thinking at the RSA about the relationship between crisis and long-term kind of intentional uh, change. And if you look historically, World War One and World War Two, enormous contrasts in terms of the trajectory out of which we emerged from those crises. Uh, and more recent example would be the AIDS crisis, which was a terrible thing, but yet when we emerged from it, the gay community had kind of grown up, was taking responsibility. We were investing in treatment in a way that eventually meant the condition was no longer fatal. And there was a transformation in public attitudes towards the LGBT community. So a positive trajectory. We, many of us hoped out of the financial crisis, there would similarly be a kind of positive trajectory, but there wasn't really. I mean, we've seen more social polarisation, more political polarisation. What lessons do you think we might learn at this stage from what what went wrong in terms of the expectations there might be a shift out of 2007-8? Well, obviously, I lived through that crisis. I became chairman of the UK Financial Services Authority on September the 20th, 2008, which was five days after Lehman Brothers had uh, collapsed. And therefore, I have reflected on the difference between that crisis and this one. And of course, they are very different, because what happened in 2008 was a economic crisis which started as a completely avoidable financial crisis. Uh, We allowed within the financial system before 2008 the build-up of completely unnecessary risks because we were in the grip of a set of uh, absurd economic doctrines uh, about the limitless uh, capacity and benefit of financial innovation. We created a financial crisis of over-leverage and too much risk-taking within the financial system itself, and that then infected uh, the real economy. This time round, it's very different. The thing has started as a health crisis. It's moved to uh, the real economy. And of course, it could threaten the financial system. Though I have to say the one good thing about what happened after 2008, and I was involved in it, so I hope I'm, uh, I'm not just sort of a, 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 a blowing my own trumpet here. I do think we took the necessary measures to make sure that the financial system itself 
is more resilient. And that's why I think in this crisis, we, I don't think we will see a knock-on problem of major banks going bankrupt and having to be rescued or causing problems. And that reflects the changes we made after 2008. But I think you're right that what happened after 2008 was quite a lot of work in fixing the technical problems within the financial system, the capital ratios of banks, the way that derivatives are cleared, constraints on how much risk-taking is going on uh, in the trading rooms of banks. And that has put us in good stead. But we did not address the more fundamental uh, things which had also gone on before 2008, the rise in inequality, uh, the overfixation with the role of the financial system uh, within our economy. But maybe that was inevitable because, as it were, the technical thing which had led to the crisis of 2008 was fixable. Now, the other thing to say, of course, is that broadly speaking, the political winners of the last 10 years have not been the people who thought they might be the political winners of 2008, which might be a sort of broadly social democratic mixed economy, the, you know, uh, centre left, uh, better able to say, look, we've, we've got this, this capitalist system has got out of balance and it's got out of balance in an extreme free market neoliberal direction. Let's pull it back. The winners have, broadly speaking, been a completely different force, somewhat uh, orthogonal to that dimension, which is the populist right, uh, the, the anti-immigrant, the nationalist right. And I think what that has told us is that in periods of stress, um, that those stories that come from the populist right um, have a lot of uh, appeal for people. And they come out to a degree uh, out of the economic inequalities and vulnerabilities uh, that the current form of capitalism uh, has created. Um, but we have learned from the last 10 years that uh, they may be the winners uh, from this crisis rather than the set of policies which I would prefer, which, as it were, rebalance the system to something uh, better able to give more and more people uh, opportunities rather than feeling uh, vulnerable uh, and threatened. So in this crisis, I think we should try and take the opportunity to try and win the arguments for greater balance, for greater resilience, greater investment in resilience. I mean, one thing which is interestingly comparable between this crisis and the last is the failure to pay attention to the importance of small probability or what we thought was small probability, but extremely harmful risks and the failure to invest against them. I mean, actually, we don't invest enough in spare capacity within health systems, such as we didn't invest enough before 2008 in spare capital within the banks, because we had a philosophy that said anything which is spare capacity is waste. We don't need it now, so it's waste that we don't need for the future. But I think one of the things that we should realise coming out of this is that extreme negative events are very, very bad for human welfare, and we should invest to prevent them, whether they be uh, bad health events or bad climate events looking over the longer time period. But the final thing to say is 
The future is not determinate in politics. I have no idea whether the impact of this crisis will be a re-legitimation of the appropriate role of states, a re-legitimation of the importance of investing in resilience, even if it costs you a bit of money of unused capacity for a period of time, or whether it will be a reinforcement of the populist and nationalist right. I simply uh, don't know. And I think it's, it's essentially all to play for uh, within the effectiveness of the politics and communications that people now engage in. Yeah, uh, well, I completely agree with that, Adan. Indeed, when it comes to kind of debates about jobs, for example, I, I, I've come to the conclusion that the very act of prediction is kind of reactionary in a way because it denies our agency and suggests that we are simply the subject to the kind of forces beyond our control. And I think that's an argument which is appealing to people who have power because they like to be able to, they like to suggest it's not their decisions, it's, it's kind of inexorable forces. Going to this question again of the relationship between crisis and change. So the RSA, we've, we've argued broadly that, that, that we think that the crisis is most likely to lead to long-term intentional change when three conditions apply. The first is that there was demand and capacity for change before the crisis. So in a crisis, ideas don't come from nowhere. They've got to have a background. So there's demand and capacity before the crisis. Then in the crisis, the demand for change increases, but also in certain ways in the response to the crisis, we see a prefiguring of the world which might be created afterwards. Yeah, And then thirdly, the third element is that as we emerge from the crisis, as it were, as the Overton window is wider, um, people are willing to make sacrifices. Think, for example, of what Gerhard Schroeder was able to achieve in Germany when he said to people, this is the price we have to pay for reunification. He was able to put in place some quite radical reforms. So people are open to doing things differently. You've got to, at that point, have the political coalitions and the practical policy ideas to take advantage of that moment. And reading your own thoughts about the crisis, I think similarly you want to argue that it's, the crisis won't transform things, but it will accelerate processes that were already at play? Well, I think it will accelerate, and I think it's in ways that accelerate, which may accentuate the problems we've faced before. Let me give you one very particular way that I think it will accelerate. I mean, broadly speaking, we have had a trend for 30 years or longer, indeed, it's almost perpetual uh, within capitalism, that you are automating some jobs within the economy, but hopefully you are creating new jobs. And over the last 30 years, this has been increasingly driven by information and communication technology and robotization and automation. And broadly speaking, what's been going on is we've been working out across the world how to produce all the physical goods we need in factories with fewer and fewer people. We have been heading towards more uh, high productive, low employment forms of retailing with online uh, retailing. We've been automating our, uh, our wholesale distribution processes, you know, the way that a warehouse uh, operates. And we've been automating various bits of uh, information processing, the sort of things that people do uh, sitting in front of computers, uh, uh, manipulating uh, data in somewhat straightforward ways in call centres and other forms of clerical processing. And in all of those, we have been automating. But up until the crisis, the one good news was that we'd always found 
new jobs for people to do. And those new jobs had primarily been in what you might call face-to-face or tactile services, the sort of jobs where in the very nature of what you're providing, you're right next door to someone. You're a waiter in a pub, uh, you're in a restaurant, or you're in a care home, or you're in a a nurse or a caring uh, assistant in a hospital. They are, the nature of them is that they are face-to-face. We have automated in some areas, created jobs in others. I think the huge challenge that we have is that I think we are likely to get an acceleration of the process of automation just at the point whether there are constraints on creating those tactile jobs. The acceleration of the craze of automation, I think, is going to arise because this crisis has increased the cost of employing labour. If you run a factory and you are now told, and you, you want to believe, you don't have to be told it, you want to believe it because you want to be a, a good employer, that you've got to have all your employees two metres apart, You've got to make sure that they go through hygiene uh, protocols. You've got to sanitize all the uh, equipment. You've got to think about uh, your shift patterns so there aren't too many people on the shift at any one time. All that increases the cost of employing labor very significantly, while the cost of investing in a robot hasn't gone up because a robot doesn't get sick and the robot doesn't need to be placed two metres apart as long as the arms don't actually hit each other. They can be placed as close as you want. And what I think, therefore, we will see is accelerated automation in uh, manufacturing. And I'm already hearing people, for instance, in China, saying they are going to now implement in one year a plans for automation which were intended to be spread over the next five years. I think we are going to see an accelerated shift from traditional bricks and mortar retailing to online retailing. And although retailing will come back as lockdown eases, for some period of time, it may have limits on how many people can be in a store at any one time. And even when we relax those limits, again, the cost of employing labour has increased. And within uh, warehousing and distribution, the clear winners from this crisis are the people who are like Amazon or Ocado, who operate extremely automated warehouses. And the people who found it quite difficult Uh, to keep going and initially had to close uh, their online sites down were the people who have lots and lots of relatively low paid labour doing manual picking. Even in horticulture, people are saying, who's going to pick the strawberries this year when there aren't Romanian migrant workers? Well, I don't know what's going to happen this year, but I bet a whole load of strawberry farmers are now taking seriously some of the robotized machinery which can pick robots in a automated fashion because they'll be worried that even if the Romanian migrant workers are back next year, what if, what if there's another of these in five years' time? So I think we can see across whole segments of the economy where we have all had automation, a intensification of that trend, an intensification of job destruction in that area, but it's occurring just at the time when we've, as it were, switched off the job-creating machinery in tactile services. And I think this is a major challenge in 
the developed economies, it's almost a bigger challenge in developing economies. I mean, if I were to think of a developing economy which wanted to follow the East Asian path of mass manufacturing, uh, 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 low-wage manufacturing as the first step of economic progress, I think that is more threatened now because I think we are going to see an intensification of the robotization of manufacturing and the return of manufacturing activity to the advanced economies, but with almost no jobs. But unfortunately for those developing economies, it's also turning occurring just that that intensification is occurring at the same time that international tourism has been destroyed and that remittances from migrant workers who go abroad have been destroyed. So one of the things that worries me and that I think then, but this is your point about agency, we have to work out how to take those trends and take the positives from them, which could be an improvement in productivity, while offsetting the downsides, which unless we get it right, will be either problems of higher unemployment or just an intensification of inequality. Because you can always offset unemployment by people, by forcing people to work at wage rates so low that it makes sense to employ them. I mean, that's, you know, ultimately you can do that. But these trends either create an unemployment problem or they create an intensification of our inequality problems. And so we just have to be aware that that is the trend that could occur and work out what public policies can we deploy, which as best, as best possible lean against uh, those trends. Well, I think uh, on that topic... The, the stuff that you're thinking about or you were thinking about before the crisis um, chimes very much with our own thinking at the RSA. So we're publishing a, a report in a couple of weeks on a kind of new social contract to reflect some of the trends you've talked about, growth of economic insecurity, precariousness, but also thinking broadly about sustainability. And I know that the book you're working on is also thinking about some of those questions about what is the new social contract that we need. So just outline, I want to get on to green recovery in a moment, Adair, we've only got 10 minutes, but just outline for me, what do you think are the critical features of the new social contract we need if we're moving into the world you're describing? Well, uh, if I can just do a piece of flagrant advertising about 18 months in advance, I am producing a, a book, somewhat delayed at the moment, but due to be published by uh, Yale University Press next autumn called uh, Capitalism in an Age of Robots. And what I'm, I haven't got to yet some of the trends that I'll talk about are the trends I was talking about earlier. What do you do about it? I do think we are living, we're heading to a world in which, given the extraordinary power of information and communications technology, we will not need as many people as we do at the moment to do all the absolutely necessary uh, economic functions. Now, we can still create new jobs because we can create new forms of service and product, but those jobs may be very low paid. Now, the question that raises is what should be your attitude to universal basic income, to things which ensure an equality of citizenship, not an absolute equality, but an equality of citizenship, uh, even if there is a significant uh, inequality of paid work within the marketplace. And one of the things that I'm increasingly focused on there is actually maybe not focusing on universal basic income as simply cash in people's hands, 
But the things that need to be provided at an affordable pace for a price for people to have a reasonable standard of living. What I mean by that is if you work out what makes people poor, it's actually some specific categories of expenditure. It's quite difficult in Britain today and in the vast economies today to be poor because you can't afford clothing. Clothing and perfectly good clothing is available at a very, very cheap price. Actually, quite fashionable clothing, clothing which looks fairly nice, that wears well. That is very cheap. But the things which are expensive are housing, transport with a trade-off that if you have to travel a long distance in order to get a slightly lower affordable housing price, you're hit by a large transport cost. Um, a university education is creating a, a, a debt dependency. In the US, thank God, uh, and not in the UK, uh, there is a problem of healthcare as expenditure. But in different countries, you see different categories of expenditure, which very significantly explain why people are poor. Um, to me, that says that let us not, not necessarily, I don't exclude it, think about the universal basic income in the sense of everybody gets a certain amount of, uh, of income. But I think we need to make sure that enough affordable housing is available through the forms of state intervention that can achieve that. That the transport that people need in order to connect to a place of work is attractive and reasonably uh, cheap that we maintain excellence of free education and free uh, healthcare. And that also that the public realm is affordable and available. I mean, I think, you know, I am in a very lucky position in this lockdown. I have a house an hour outside London that I moved to uh, about a week before lockdown. It has a garden and it has fields beyond. And frankly, I'm almost embarrassed about how life, pleasant my life is. Uh, my, one of my daughters is in Berlin, the other's in London. And I know that many people in London, it's much more stressful. But the one thing they have found rather nice is that the air quality has got much better. It's a nice place to be out that actually is rather nicer cycling around London uh, than it was before the crisis because at least there are no cars there. So we've got to th start thinking about how do you create attractive urban environments, things like parks and sporting facilities and things that enable you to enjoy an attractive standard of living even if your monetary income is relatively low. I think we really need uh, to focus on that. And some of that uh, overlaps with the green agenda and in particularly the greener agenda in relation to the living green city of, of the future, which are very important. And I think people have thought about this in the last week or so as we've reopened the golf courses and people have suddenly realized, well, there are some very beautiful golf courses, but um, they are available to the people who pay the golf course subscriptions. It's actually rather important that as we come out of lockdown, all people from all income levels have that access to, to, to green space. So increasingly, I, I think of things which define equality of citizenship, either which should be free, attractive public space or 
provided in a way which are clearly affordable, public transport and housing, which are the necessary parts of balancing a economic system, which I think for quite deep structural reasons will tend to produce a very wide inequality of the monetary income that people receive from the market. That's absolutely fascinating, Darren. I mean, just two thoughts before I ask you the last question. Um, I think one is how do you make that happen in a capitalist economy? What does that mean for the fundamentals of the economy? I mean, I, 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 I think that's something that um, it, it, it's very challenging because I, I don't see how you can do that, how so much of society can be subsidised or free um, because in a way the, the course of capitalism over the last 30 years has been to privatise more and more and more in order to keep the machine turning. So that's a, that's a different conversation which we must have when you publish your book or if not beforehand. Um, the other thing I think is that we are now quite possibly moving into a what a 12 month and 18 month transition period it seems to me the way we design this transition period is very important so that to use the phrase we use all the time we are building a bridge to the future that we can experiment with the ideas over the next 18 months which mean that even if a vaccine does come along we've tested out some of the possibilities we need now because we've got so little time final question you know, you're a very kind of cerebral guy, but you've been forced to deal with the kind of bruising nature of politics because you've tried to influence government for many, many years. And when you and I worked together in Number 10, you were kind of in your your review was embroiled in the Blair Brown melodrama. In Whitehall right now, there is an argument, a poised argument about whether it's growth, any cost and, 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 and you know, solve the consequences, as it were, or green recovery. If you were advising those people who are trying to persuade government to, to come out of this with intentionality, with a commitment to the long term, with a commitment to this deeper notion of resilience that you've described, how would you be trying to make the argument, given the kinds of pressures that they're under now? Well, I think the argument on the green side has to, it does have to have a long term element. You do have to convince people that there is a problem of climate change and that it is a potentially catastrophic uh, 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 danger to human welfare, which I, I believe it is. And you can't, we can't avoid that argument. If you don't win that argument, you're starting on a back foot. I think the good news is that, broadly speaking, the UK government is formally committed to that. We have legal commitments of uh, zero carbon. We are the president of COP26 next year. We are taking that seriously. I think you have to build on that to saying, OK, if we want to head towards a zero carbon economy, because we believe it's important for climate, the good news is that we can get there at a low cost, because here are the technologies. The technologies of uh, wind and solar have made extraordinary progress in the last 10 years. And for instance, the UK is sitting in the, on the North Sea with an enormous a renewable energy resource and employment creation opportunity. So you tell people a story, which is absolutely right, that the technologies and the core of these technologies is green electrification, right? We are going to electrify the as vast majority of the economy 
it will create a, 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 a better local environment, a more flexible economy, a more efficient economy. We electrify it and we make that electricity green. And that technological vision is absolutely there. And we can have a zero carbon economy at 2050 with a cost to GDP where I don't even know if it's a positive or negative, but I know it's a very small number uh, if it is a, a negative. And then you have to say, and in addition, Amid this crisis, reinforcing the green agenda is one of the things that can help us offset some of the problems uh, that we face. It can help offset uh, the, the, the jobs problem. Now, not immediately, and one shouldn't over, overstate it because there's some, some, re, uh, some uh, movements across sectors we have to deal with. But for instance, refurbishing homes, increasing their insulation, increasing their energy efficiency, putting in heat pumps or echo restoration, you know, the level of woodland restoration, reforestation, which we need in this country de defined by uh, the Climate Change Committee. Those are inevitably quite labour intensive activities. And they're labour intensive activities that don't require, you know, high levels of cerebral cognitive activity. They require skills, but they are, you know, the skills of the artisanal skills, uh, the, the technical skills, the skills of plumbers, electricians, um, you know, gardeners, forest experts, etc. They are exactly the sort of skills that we have tended to undervalue in Britain in the past and to underinvest in. Now, of course, the flip side of that is you can't suddenly create a whole load of plumbers and electricians, you know, in a month and say, you know, you've been laid off by this pub or this restaurant, go off and be a plumber and electrician. But we ought to be, and this is where it does overlap with what's called the levelling up agenda, which I do think the government was already taking seriously, and I think in particular Rishi Sunak takes seriously, um, of how do we, you know, create jobs uh, for across the whole economy, not just in the sort of creative big city hubs of the Manchester and the London, but across the whole economy. And the great news about a lot of things we have to do on the green recovery is they are exactly those sort of jobs. They are inherently local. They are jobs which are needed everywhere in the economy, wherever there is a house, uh, we need that. And so I think it is possible to combine a story of the scientific need to deal with climate change, a story that it is technologically possible for us to fix this problem at a very low or even zero cost to conventionally measured GDP and with huge benefits to human welfare, and a story, a compelling story, that what we need to do over the next two years to drive that green recovery forward is also good uh, to deal with the very challenges of job creation in particular, uh, with which, which uh, on my earlier argument, I think are going to be accentuated uh, by the impact of this crisis on automation. Well, I doubt I could go on talking to you for uh, hours. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you for taking time to talk to me today and give such an illuminating overview um, of the changes we see in the crisis, but also the opportunities which now exist for uh, the reset which needed to happen uh, anyway. Before we sign off, a quick reminder to stay tuned to the RSA's channels in the coming weeks for all the latest online event and podcast announcements, as well as fresh insights from our policy research teams and news from our global fellowship community. Finally, 
Thank you again to Adair Turner and thank you all for watching. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.